The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for the advice, news, tips, techniques, and strategies you need to start or grow a business in investing in residential real estate. And today is not just the day before Thanksgiving, it is also question and answer week, the last Thursday, Thursday, yeah, that's good, last Wednesday of the month. And uh, as always, that means that there is no real topic except what you would like to talk about. So any questions that you have regarding investing in real estate, whether it be about buying, selling, financing, exit strategies, whatever the case may be, you can give us a call today at 877-772-9658 or simply send an email to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. There is no show without your questions, and since you're probably sitting in traffic right now anyway, uh, you might as well uh, take a moment and call in with that question that's been bugging you about real estate investing. Again, the toll-free number, 877-772-9658. The email address, askvina at gmail.com, A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. A little bit later on, we will be dealing with the story that has taken uh, at least Facebook by storm about the fellow here in Cincinnati who's decided that it is perfectly legal to break into someone else's house, change the locks, and declare it yours as long as it's abandoned. True or false? I'll talk about that a little bit later with our resident real estate legal expert, James Flax. Don't forget that if you are a big fan of Real Life Real Estate and you don't want to miss it live, you can always listen to the show live streaming on your phone or tablet. You can get the Real Life Real Estate Mobile.com. Uh, go to Real Life Real Estate Mobile.com and download WMKV's app. And then if you just always know that wherever you are, you can hit the button and listen to us live streaming on Wednesdays from 5 to 6 o'clock Eastern Time. And uh, never have to miss another program. Uh, also, uh, we're, we're still having that issue after all these years. All these years. We're still having that issue where half the people I run into think that Real Life Real Estate Investing is a podcast. And the other half don't realize there is a podcast. Real Life Real Estate Investing is a live radio program hosted 
by WMKVFM here in Cincinnati, Ohio. It is a real true to God radio station. Like people are listening to it through the speakers in their car right now. But in addition to that, the great folks at WMKV also uh, post the programs at iTunes.com. You can look that up under Real Life Real Estate Investing. And when you go there, you will find we are we are up to almost 200 podcasts. I am I'm running into people from all over the country saying I listen to you every day of the week because I downloaded all the podcasts and I just constantly, constantly am listening to Real Life Real Estate. So yes, it's both, ladies and gentlemen. You can listen to the podcast, but you can also participate here live. Uh, as would be a great idea today, since it's question and answer week on real life real estate. Askvina at gmail.com is one way to uh, get your question to me here at the studio. The other way is to call toll free 877-772-9658. Uh, I have a question here from Dave in Atlanta. Oh, and by the way, we really like it when you tell us where you are from because uh, sometimes if you're asking a particular type of question, it may make a difference if you are uh, in California versus in, I don't know, say Alabama. Uh, And this is one of those questions, Dave, that, you know, we could really just sit here for days and days and days and, and discuss. The question is, if you were just getting started in real estate today, what would you do? And I'll tell you something, Dave, it drives... It drives real estate investors nuts, and particularly folks who are newer to the business when you say it depends, but sometimes it depends. In fact, often (laughs) the the correct answer is it depends, and the correct answer to your question is it depends. Um, If I were just getting started in real estate, uh, the very first thing I would do in whether today or 20 years ago or 20 years from now, is I go find my local real estate investors association and I would join it. And I would go to the meetings and I would take advantage of all of the benefits that it offers, whatever those might be. And uh, I would get my feet under me in terms of the different strategies that people were exercising and also um, just very basic ground level stuff like what neighborhoods are considered to be good rental neighborhoods, what neighborhoods are considered to be good retail neighborhoods, all of that sort of thing. But I suspect you are looking for a much more specific answer like, oh, I would go wholesale houses or I would go buy properties creatively. And that is where it depends, Dave, because it really it, it, it it's really all about what is the need in your life that you are hoping investing in real estate will fill. I'm 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 guessing that it's not that you have zillions of hours of spare time that you're just looking to find something to do. There's probably some life goal that is related to money that you are looking to get taken care of and that might be, you know, I need money right now because I have too many credit card bills, or it could be I'm worried about my retirement, which is 15 years away, and I have no money put away. So I really need longer term income and equity. There's no right way to start in real estate, no matter what it is you have been told. Uh, there's not a there's not some sort of a, a real estate investing career path that's you know starts with wholesaling and goes to retailing and then renting and then apartment buildings and then commercial properties and then private lending. That that would be one path, 
But if what you need right now is not additional cash, but rather to start building income for the future, I would absolutely not start in wholesaling. I would start by training myself about rental properties and how to buy them creatively, and I would go out and do that. So join your local association, kind of figure out what's going on, decide for yourself what kind of income you're looking for, pick the strategy that is going to meet that goal, go invest some money and time in getting educated about that strategy, and go from there. Don't let anyone tell you this is the way it should be done in terms of your career path in real estate investing. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate. It's question and answer week. We need your questions at askvina at gmail.com or at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Today is question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate, which means there's no official topic. We're answering your questions at 877-772-9658, or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. And uh, don't forget uh, to let us know where you are writing from. Um, you know, another thing that would be really welcome today, it, it, it getting being toward the end of the year now is if you have suggestions about topics you'd like to hear more about in 2014 things you'd like to hear more about less about suggestions for presenters um you know what do you what do you want to do in 2014 it's public radio ladies and gentlemen i get paid exactly the same amount no matter what topic we do here on real life real estate so uh, askvina at gmail.com or 877-772-9658. Now, those of you who have lots of Facebook friends who are in real estate uh, might have noticed a story going around today uh, that was uh, based on an, an investigation from WLWT.com here in Cincinnati. Apparently, uh, a family in Springdale, Ohio, went out of town uh, to visit some sick relatives. And when they came back, they discovered that a gentleman had uh, broken into their home, removed all their stuff, changed the locks, put up a no trespassing sign, and declared himself to now be in possession of the property via a quiet title action. And apparently... Uh, this guy did has not done this one time. He's done it 10 or 11 times uh, here in the greater Cincinnati area. And uh, his argument to the uh, reporter Corinne Johnson at WLWT was, and I quote, when you abandoned a prop, when you abandon a property, bam, walk away from it. I ain't never coming back. I don't want nothing to do with it. Somebody can come in and say, oh, mine. Carr told Johnson, describing why he believed the property could be taken. Now, the the funny thing about this story going around is that there seems to be a lot of confusion about whether or not this guy can actually come steal your house while you're out of town for Thanksgiving. And here to answer that question is Real Life Real Estate's favorite legal expert, Mr. James Flax. James, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Well, hello, Vina. I'm uh, right now, I'm looking at uh, the links documents in this story, um, which I guess most of the people commenting on the story didn't bother to click on the little hyperlinks. Um, 
Mr. Carr is presently out on bond, waiting his trial on counts of burglary and uh, felony theft for his actions in this case. So let me just give you the short answer. Sure, you can do it. They're just going to throw you in prison if you do it. <laughs> well, um, um, that, I, I think that's going to come as relief to all of our friends who are on their way, you know, to Cleveland to visit their grandparents. So, you know, they're not going to come back on Monday morning and find that someone has legally stolen their house. But uh, a lot of the confusion has come around this concept of the quiet title action. Now, clearly, Mr. Carr is very confused about what a quiet title action did does and what it can accomplish for him. And yet it is something that... Uh, has legitimate uses. So let's talk about what quiet title actions actually are and what Mr. Carr has done wrong here. Well, a quiet title action is its sort of your last resort. If you own a piece of real estate and there is a title problem, uh, for example, an unreleased mortgage, uh, an unreleased land contract, someone in the chain of title, a previous owner, in other words, uh, didn't release dower, there's a deed in the chain that doesn't state whether somebody was married or not, so you're not sure whether there's dower been released. A quiet title action is your last resort. It's the way that you get the. It's, it's a, an action for what's called a declaratory judgment. It, you file the suit with the common police court in Ohio. The common police court's the court that has jurisdiction over real estate, and the court, after. A, lengthy process that involves usually service by publication. In other words, you have to spend several weeks publishing an ad in the paper of record to put people on notice that they're being asked to prove a certain right that they might possibly assert. The court will declare that whoever you are trying to quiet title against, or all and sundry if you're doing it against multiple people, do not have a valid claim against your land. Um, you notice that I said your land in there. This is an action you bring when you own the property. It's an action you bring when you own the property because you can't find someone that might possibly have a claim against your land. And it, we're not talking about real claims. We're not talking you sold the property to someone and then you file a quiet title to take it back. We're talking about claims in the chain of title, things that weren't done correctly at an earlier time where there is some interest in your property that, that wasn't properly extinguished at a closing. Somebody messed something up. Somebody didn't catch something in a title search. And now you're getting ready to sell your property, or for whatever reason it's come up to you, and you, you want to make, make it very clear that you own this property. You want a judgment on the record that clears up this, this cloud on your title. So you go to court. You follow all the rules. You spend a bunch of money filing, you know, publishing notices to this person. You attempt to serve them with notice. And at the end of the day, the court comes in, looks at everything, says you've done everything correctly, says, yes, this person potentially had a right. We we're going to just close that right out at this point. Mm -hmm. Notice that I did not say they're closing out the right of someone who's in possession of the property because they're not going to. If you have title to the property, this is not going to affect you. If there's a dispute between you and someone else as to who has title to the property, you're not going to end up with a nice, simple, quiet title action. You're going to end up with a lawsuit where both sides are represented 
arguing about who has the proper claim to the land. This is a situation where some bank that has since gone out of business loaned your predecessor in the house money. And when you bought the house, that mortgage didn't get properly released. And since then, that bank has closed its doors. So you can't find them. You can't get them to create a release. If you could, you would do that rather than file a quiet title action. You're just asking a court. You're presenting the evidence that the thing was paid off, that you've taken title properly, you're the owner, and asking the court to basically confirm your ownership. This individual, this Robert Carr individual in this case, um, I don't know where he got his information, although from reading his filings in this case, I think he's somebody who's actually insane. I, I don't think this is... You know, there's a lot of talk in the article about him being a member of some group, and there's groups going around doing this. I, I don't know whether there are groups going around doing this or not. I'm not convinced that there are. I need to see more evidence. Um, I think this gentleman is insane. And one of the reasons I think he's insane is that there are pages and pages of requests for competency evaluation and hearing in his case, which, you know, they, they found him competent to stand trial, but that doesn't mean he's not mentally ill. That means he doesn't meet the... Uh, the legal definition of insanity, which is basically that you're not responsible for your actions. Um, so what we have here is a case of a crazy person doing something crazy and illegal who is in at present in the process of being sent to where we send crazy people who do things that are illegal. Um, but in the meantime, it's become a story. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. Uh, if you ever do need to file a quiet title action, your your title attorney will probably be happy to charge you a couple grand to do it, and you'll find that it's a much more boring action than this, and doesn't actually involve you getting anybody else's land for free. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yes, and there uh, the, the 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 typical cases in which we see quiet title actions in in real life, not in whatever world this happened in uh, are, are things like uh, we saw one recently where uh, the property had gone through a bank foreclosure and then gone to another buyer and then now you know we're buying it and this thing pops up that 10 years ago there was a quit claim deed conveyed improperly so so the husband the husband signed it but the wife didn't sign it and nobody picked it up through that point and no one knows where this husband and wife are anymore so the the quick claim or the uh the the quiet title was to say look it's been 10 years clearly they meant to convey interest they didn't do it exactly correctly and we can't find them and in order to sell the property we need to have the the tie it the the, the uh, title quieted uh, a more aggressive sense in which it is used sometimes is when um when a bank drops a foreclosure, these, these zombie foreclosures where the bank will start the process and then they will take a look at the property and say, yeah, we don't actually want it as it turns out. So they drop the case and then a new buyer wants to buy the property, but the mortgage is still there because the bank dropped the foreclosure suit but did not drop the mortgage. And you'll sometimes hear about people filing quiet titles against the bank to say, look, either stand up and enforce this mortgage or don't respond to this and go away and your mortgage will go away. Sometimes people hear 20% of what's being said and make, well, <laughs> jump to conclusions about what that yeah. actually means because uh, the difference between what Mr. Carr uh, attempted to accomplish here 
And what somebody who's doing something like that would be attempting to accomplish is the person who is doing that actually owns the property. Well, and that's if you're ever ever considering filing a quiet title action, and you are not either a government jurisdiction attempting to clarify ownership of a property so you can finish seizing it, or the person who's presently in ownership of the property, you're the wrong person to file it. This is not something you file unless you own the property. Um, but even in the case you're talking about where there's a bank and you're trying to force the bank to you know, assert their mortgage or hold their peace, uh, it, this, uh, this doesn't really work. I mean, if the bank doesn't respond, sure, you, you'll get the quiet title action, and then it, it worked. But in most of those cases, what, what's going to happen is you're really just trying to force the bank to get back into communication with you because the, uh, the bank doesn't have to either foreclose or let their interest go away. The bank can simply come in and say, yes, we have this mortgage and it's valid, and we aren't foreclosing at this time because they have that right. Mm-hmm. Now, given some of the big banks, I'm sure some people have managed to get mortgages extinguished because some of the big banks wouldn't respond to really anything, no matter how important it is to them. So I I, I don't object to anybody using that that strategy if people are out attempting that sure go ahead and, and if it works great good for you uh, but the first step in a strategy like that is to acquire ownership in the property own the property have, first <laughs> yeah you're going to have to go find whoever is currently the owner pay them some nominal amount of money to get them to deed the property to you and then assert your rights as the person that has been you know, deeded the property. And be aware that you're buying a piece of property that someone else, namely the bank, has a prior and superior claim on. So they're going to be able to take the property back if they assert their rights. If they just let things slide, sure, you may have gotten a piece of cheap property, but there is a risk. So don't go paying full market price for these properties. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, James, for clarifying that for us. That's uh, James Flax, attorney at law here in the Cincinnati area, helping us out with a story that we saw today on WLWT.com. And you can see it too by going to our Facebook page. We went ahead and put the link up there because I knew that there were going to be a lot of people um, wanting to see the entire story. It's realliferealestateradio.com. Realliferealestateradio.com will take you to our Facebook page. Click the like button and join the 5,675 people who already like real life real estate investing. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Give us a call at 772-9658 or send us an email, askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and today is question and answer week here on real life real estate uh which means we need your questions or i'm just gonna have to talk real slow for the rest of the show to fill it up 877-772-9658 is our number here on the studio you can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com a uh, question here from JC in Las Vegas. Uh, Vina, I finally listened to your recommendations and opened a self-directed IRA. 
hmm, that's funny. We don't give legal accounting or the professional advice here on real life real estate investing, but I'm sure you've heard uh, many of our guests talk about the advantages of self-directed IRAs. I want to use it to invest in private loans to other investors, but I only have about $10,000 to start. Is it unwise to make a smaller junior mortgage or repair loan? What do I need to examine and do to protect my IRA if I choose to do this? Well, uh, there's nothing wrong with junior liens, uh, second mortgages, even third mortgages, if there is still enough equity in the property to protect you in case of a foreclosure. Because remember, when you're in second position on a property, that means if your loan goes bad and you have to bear the costs of the foreclosure, uh, everybody ahead of you get, gets paid from that foreclosure before you do. So in other words, to let's just make up some numbers. It's a $100,000 house. There's a first mortgage of 50 and then yours is 20. Okay, so 50 plus 20 is 70. That's not bad. It's likely that at a foreclosure auction, the property would in fact sell for $70,000 or perhaps a little bit more, meaning that you would recover your $20,000, although whether or not you would recover your fees and court costs depends on the state. However, if the first mortgage is 70 and yours is another 20, equaling 90 on that $100,000 house, uh, the chances of you recovering some or all of your money in a foreclosure is uh, pretty slim, which makes that a riskier loan. That is why junior mortgages generally carry a somewhat higher interest rate than the first mortgage might. Other things to do to protect yourself are the same things you would do if you were loaning money from your IRA or your personal bank account or whatever. Um, make sure that there's a real title search so that you know that you're in the position that you think you're in. Make sure that there is title insurance with you as the beneficiary of that, of course. Uh, make sure, or your IRA in this case, make sure that there is hazard insurance on the property and that you are a named loss payee on that title insurance. Make sure that you know what the numbers of the deal are. Make sure you are certain that the property is in fact worth X dollars. Uh, and the biggest thing with these repair mortgages is that you really shouldn't hand cash to a borrower and say, yes, now go fix that property that serves as security for my loan. Because if you do that, you have no control over where that cash actually goes. It could go into that property. It could go into another property. It could go to pay the Amex bill. You don't know where it's going. And until, unless and until that cash is in your security, so it's, in other words, it's been invested in your property in the form of repairs and upgrades to increase the value of the property, uh, your loan is not as secure as it ought to be. So what is the alternative to handing over cash? Because that's what every investor is going to want you to do. Just just give me the cash. I promise I'll use it to, to fix this house. Uh, is make the agreement with the investor, get the mortgage, get the note, and put the money in a repair account that uh, gets taken out in draws. So 
if the investor says it's going to cost me $30,000 to do this work, and here is the list of things that I would like to do for that $30,000, uh, they get $10,000 when they're a third of the way through, and $10,000 more when they're a third of the way through, and they only get the rest when they are 100% finished with the property. No, nothing left to do, right? Because that's what really makes that house that they paid 54 worth 100 is doing the repairs. Uh, one of the things that we'd like to do in 2014 here on Real Life Real Estate is provide you with more backup information. Uh, we did that a little bit this year. We had a special report on how to get started wholesaling. Uh, currently at AskVena.com, we have a contractor agreement from Jerry Fink. Uh, one of the things that we could do this year, if we have, an, or even in the next couple of weeks, if we had a few requests for it is uh, put up some information about how to protect yourself in private loans, things to make sure you have in place, uh, things to make sure that you've done, looked at, understand, etc. Um, if you'd like to see that go up on askvina.com, send me an email at askvina at gmail.com. And I'm going to be like a congressman. I'm going to assume that every one person who emails me at askvina at gmail.com and says, yes, I want to see that information about how to be a successful private lender represents 100 votes. And so if I get five people that request it, we'll go ahead and go through the effort to put it up there. I say we like I have anything to do with that whatsoever. I will go through the effort of telling someone who knows how to do it <laughs> to go do it. Just get them the information. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week this week, which means that there is no show unless you have questions. Uh, the way to contact us with those questions, whatever they may be, is by going to by uh, sending an email to askvina at gmail.com or by calling 877-772-9658. No question is out of bounds today, whether you're a brand new investor trying to figure out how to get started or whether you are somebody with a question about management or subject twos or creative finance or wholesaling or whatever you would like to know about. 877-772-9658 is the number to call or you can send an email to askmina at gmail.com. Speaking of people who know how to do stuff that I don't know how to do, I was just handed an, a uh, note from the smart boy telling me that the direct link to the current iTunes Real Life Real Estate podcast is bit.ly slash capital R, capital E, capital I, capital P, podcast. So it's bit.ly slash REI podcasts, but REI and P are all capitalized. And one thing I do know from past mistakes is that <laughs> it makes a difference whether or not it's capitalized. Um, okay, question here from Mel in Cincinnati. She says, I have a seller who has agreed to let me do a lease option assignment on his property, but he wants $2,500 down, and I don't think I can get more than about $5,000 up front. Any suggestions? Well, Mel, I mean, <laughs> you got you got three options here, right? Number one, you can do what he wants, and if you get five thousand up front and he gets twenty five hundred, you still have twenty five hundred. Number two is you can go back and try to convince him to do it your way, which I assume is something 
significantly less for him and more for you. Or number three, you can walk. And sometimes when sellers of any stripe are being especially difficult, uh, the best thing to do is walk. Remember, it is Thanksgiving. It is, I mean, what are, what are the chances this guy is going to get his house sold anytime between now and March without you? Like, like, like if you're not, if you're not buying this deal from him, who's going to buy it during the holidays exactly? So your best move here might just be to say, well, I understand and I, I get why you want that, but it doesn't work for me. So uh, I'll call you back in a few weeks and we'll see how it's going for you if you don't mind and hey, good luck. I hope you sell it. Right. So sometimes, sometimes the best thing to do is move on to a seller or for that matter, buyer who is being more reasonable. I had a conversation uh, yesterday with a um, buyer. Actually, they, uh, she was a seller. She wants to sell me her house. But in order to sell me her house, she has to buy another house. And she had put in an offer on this other house. Uh, I think the the asking price was one fourteen, and she offered one hundred one. And the seller came back at one hundred six, and then just said, "That's the the least I'm I'm going to take. That's it. That's that's the least I'm going to take." And I thought, "Wow, it's like it's like Tuesday of Thanksgiving week for real, and you are." turning down a cash offer. This was a cash offer. This wasn't even, I have to go get my financing. This is, I could close in two weeks. You turn down a cash offer. You'd rather keep your house on the market for another probably two to three months, which is going to cost you more than the $4,000 worth of difference between this lady's offer and what you are calling your bottom line. Good luck with that. But, you know, what folks do doesn't always make sense immediately. And sometimes the market tells them that things are different than what they had hoped. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. We're taking your questions at 877-772-9658 or apparently more so at uh, askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and you're my guest today. So that means it's question and answer week. And um, although there's only about 10 minutes left in the program, uh, it is all about what you want to talk about. The um, email is askvina at gmail.com. You can also give us a call at 877-772-9658. A question from John, who apparently lives in northern Kentucky. He says, uh, the city in which I own some rental properties is now assessing a $45 per unit fee. Is this common and how can you fight it or do you just pass the fee on to the tenant and move on? Well, John... Uh, I think what you are describing is a what what is called in various places a rental registration fee, a rental licensing fee, uh, an inspe- an, an annual inspection fee, uh, and it unfortunately is becoming more and more common as cities around the nation are attempting to find places to charge people money without calling it a tax. 
and one of the easiest groups of people to whom you can charge money without calling it a tax is landlords because landlords so often do not live in the same city as their rental properties. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not talking about the, the, the hedge funds or the folks from New York City who own a property in Covington. I'm saying you live in Alexandria and your property's in Covington, so you don't vote in Covington, right? Because you don't live in Covington. And nobody feels bad, bad for you as a landlord because you're making a jillion dollars a year. So what in the world is $45 to you? And um, you know, never mind that 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 money's going to go up every year, and never mind that it's multiplied by the number of properties that you have, and never mind that you have a mortgage and you're paying taxes to both the city and the county, and you're doing maintenance, repairs, and turnovers, and 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 and. And the, in truth, forty-five bucks may be your entire cash flow for an entire month, and the city has decided that they deserve that because they have to inspect your property every year in order to keep the neighborhood safe. Now they don't have to they don't have to they don't have to inspect homeowners properties because apparently homeowners can be trusted to maintain their own properties without such a thing. In reality, of course, if they're homeowners, they vote and they wouldn't put up with that for one second. So um I'm not I'm not sure which specific uh area that you're talking about here, John, or specifically uh what the theory behind this fee is, but the reality is it's a fundraiser for your city. I can almost guarantee it. It's happening all over the United States. And the what most people do is they pass it on to their tenant. And then the tenant's mad at the landlord, not the city, even though it was the city that char- upcharged this fee. Uh, this is reason number 413 to join your local real estate investors association, because these things very often get passed without anyone in an organized way going to the municipality and saying, do you realize what you are doing if you do this? Do you realize you're going to have additional abandoned properties? There was a there was a city here in the area that was thinking about raising their fees by about five times. So it was, it was going to go from like $70 a year to $350 a year. And literally their city hall got filled up with real estate investors, real estate agents, landlords, uh, appraisers saying you are dropping the value of the properties in your city by 5,000 bucks a property by doing this. And you're going to have more abandoned houses and you're going to have a bigger problem, not less of a problem. But the reason that that happened was because here in Cincinnati, we have this strong RIA group that when someone reports this, the folks at RIA, the volunteers at RIA, run around and find out what the reality of it is and can organize people to talk to their local elected officials. And sometimes it works really well and we come up with some other way of doing things. And sometimes it gets a little more confrontational when they decide to move ahead anyway, because it looks like such a good thing for the budget. If we could just charge every landlord $45 a door, look how much more money we'd be making. Never mind that we have to hire new inspectors to do that. No, we haven't thought about that. So you have to pay your fee, but you're not actually getting the inspection that this was all that this was all based around. So long story short, John, and thanks for pushing that button. Uh, join your local real estate association wherever you are in the country. And if there is not a legislative and community relations type committee person, blah, 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 uh, make one. Uh, volunteer, be it. Find somebody who likes that kind of thing. And get them going on it because it's about time that our industry was recognized as the organized and 
thoughtful. And yes, there are some bad people running around <laughs> stealing people's houses, but they're not real estate investors. <laughs> they, they, I don't know who they are, but that's, that's, that's not the rest of us. And it's about time that uh, every area had an organized voice for that sort of thing. So thank you very much for your question, John. And um, appreciate that. Uh, we have one more question up and I guess we've got about, uh, Mike says just five minutes left in the program. So maybe I can just answer this one really slowly unless someone else wants to send one real quick to askvina at gmail.com. Uh, this question is from Anna in Akron, Ohio. She says, the problem that I'm having right now is a little bit different than the one that we, that I had a few years ago. When I am looking to purchase a, when I'm looking to wholesale a property and looking at my purchaser's buy price, it is very often the case that the comps are higher than the wholesale formula would allow me to sell it for. What do I do in a market like this? And I, and I think I know exactly what you're talking about. What's happening is you, so, so you're doing your, you're doing your wholesaling thing and you're out looking at what houses are selling for fixed up. And you're doing your formula, whether that's after repaired value times 0.6 or after repaired value times 0.7. And then you're subtracting the repair costs and you're coming up with a number at which you can sell that property to a buyer who's an investor now. So, so this is your, this is your theoretical sale number. And maybe that number is coming up at, in Akron, $19,000. And yet when you go look at the sales in that area for the last six months, there is nothing that has sold for as little as $19,000. Like bank owned properties are selling for more, share of sales are selling for more, short sales are selling for more, clearly distressed properties, everything is selling for more. Like there's no sale under $26,000 in that area. And you're sitting there thinking, well, am I, am I being a fool for offering the deal that seems to me to make financial sense and in my experience makes financial sense and that my buyers have always thought has made financial sense as opposed to selling it for more because apparently the market is going to bear more. And the answer is, welcome to the up market, Anna. Uh, we've, we've been so buried in this market where properties sat on the market forever and ever and ever, and they had to be really great deals in order to sell, and we had to be very, very careful with our numbers into a market where in some property types, in some areas, things are selling for more than they really, quote, ought to. I've run across that same exact situation 10 or 12 times in the last three months where I've said, there's no way anyone should be paying $25,000 for these properties. The numbers all say they should be paying 20, and yet everyone's paying 25. So what do you do? Well, number one, if you are certain that you have your after repaired value values right and your repair costs right, which it sounds like you are, sounds like you've been doing this for a while, and you are pretty certain that the other properties that sold were in roughly the same condition as yours, yeah, you can mark them up a couple of thousand dollars in the market right now. And and don't don't try and lie to your buyers and say, oh no, this this house is worth more than it really is, or the repair costs are less than they really are. Just say, look, I know what the I know what the value is. I know what the repair costs are. I also know what things are selling for, and what things are selling for is this higher number. And so, 
uh, I need you to pay this higher number or else we, um, I'm going to move on and find one of these guys who's paying the higher number. So it's a great question though, Anna, and we will be very interested to see what happens in the upcoming year in terms of the bounce market because, uh, there are some very smart people with a lot of statistics that are telling us that the foundations of the real estate market are not strong enough to maintain the increase in prices and decrease in inventory that we've been seeing. Well, we're going to call question and answer week for the month. Um, one quick reminder, next week, Cincinnati RIA's best and worst deal of the year meeting is happening. Uh, this is always a, a highly in-demand meeting. People want to see what other folks are doing. And at the same time, there will be a silent auction of real estate, uh, education, supplies, etc. cetera. Uh, you can get more information about that at CincinnatiRIA.com, but it only happens once a year, so don't miss it. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.